as Bruce mentioned, we're, we're beginning this new sermon series today, so that's something that's pretty exciting. We're kind of diving into some new stuff that's actually not in too entirely new based on some of the things we've been doing in recent weeks. Uh, we finished this series called Foundation, and it was based out of 1 Corinthians 3, and what we're doing now is we're kind of skipping over some stuff, hopping over to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, and dealing with this idea of body parts, the body of Christ, and what that means. Uh, so yeah, this is going to be connected to some of these things we've looked at already. If you have a Bible with you, let's just dive right in. 1 Corinthians 12 is where we're going to be today. And this is just going to kind of intro a little bit of some of the things that we're meaning and thinking and talking about when we talk about uh, the body, the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, chapter 12, Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. If you hop over to verse 20, Paul writes this. He says, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And finally, in verse 27, Paul kind of concludes this little bit of the argument, and he says, no, you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. So this last point is kind of important, because when we're talking about the body, and when we have a sermon series called Body Parts, and we're using this sort of imagery, this sort of metaphor, This last point is very important because you have Paul explicitly saying, you are the body of Christ. So this isn't just body parts or body in some sort of generic, general, metaphorical sense. It's the body of Christ. That's a very important thing to keep in mind. So I just want that to be kind of our uh, mindset as we go through this sermon series over the next little while, that we can't talk about the body in any authentically biblical, Christian sense unless we're referring to it as the body of Christ, unless Christ himself is at the center of the discussion. Otherwise, we're doing something different than what Paul is doing in this section here. So uh, we're still in chapter 12, but the text we're going to be looking at today is just where this begins, verses 1 through 7. So let's look at this, and we're going to dive into this today. Starting at verse 1, Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for giving us life this morning. Thank you that you're the giver of all good gifts and how nothing good or beautiful or true that we've experienced today has come to us apart from your grace. So just even regardless of all the things that we have in our minds and worries and pressures and stresses that we have that are very real, um, help us to just have a posture of of gratitude, even this morning. Humility and just recognizing how dependent we are on you. And we thank you that we have your word that we can open up and hear from you and learn from you and just be nourished by you. So I ask that that can happen this morning as we dig into some of this stuff, that you can reveal yourself, your grace, your goodness to us. Just help us to see you and your son more clearly. So let the the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, we've been through this foundation series where we were looking at 1 Corinthians 3. 
So as tempting as it is to dive into a whole bunch of the backgrounds of Paul's letter, of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we won't spend too much time doing that because we've already been there a little bit. Uh, one thing, though, just to point out and to remind us of, of what's going on when Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, there's this obsession with status that's going on in Corinth. There's a lot of different reasons that you can, that you can account for that, a lot of different historical reasons, but there's this obs- obsession with status and sort of... Uh, just importance and social hierarchy that's going on there. And unsurprisingly, this is uh, leading to division. This is leading to factioning. This is leading to disunity in the church. So people, people are boasting about particular teachers that they like. Uh, people are finding all sorts of ways to be uh, disunified. People are, are coming to the Lord's table and getting drunk and devouring all the food before other people get there. This has to do with their wealth and their ability to do this. And then on top of this, there, just in general, there's this incredibly dangerous spiritual arrogance that's taking place in Corinth. And there's a lot of ways to account for that and to try to make sense of that. But uh, generally speaking, the Corinthians, these are Christians. These, there's a church in Corinth, and the Corinthians had misinterpreted the gospel and certain elements of it in a very dangerous way. And they interpreted it to mean that because Christ had come, because he'd offered forgiveness and given his spirit, because Jesus had ushered in this new age of the kingdom of God, because he'd done all these things, then this means that things like weakness, suffering, sacrifice, all of these things, these are part of the past. These aren't things we need to focus on anymore. Jesus has come in, he's done this new thing, and we're living in this triumphant new age. So triumphalism, that, that's kind of a word to describe what's going on in Corinth. By and large, that's, that's something that's going on there. So they, they have this attitude. And as a result of having this attitude, anybody else who doesn't see things a similar way to them, anybody else who doesn't have this confident, triumphalistic attitude, well, they're, they're less spiritual. Or they're less gifted. They're a second-rate Christian somehow. So again, there's this status, separation, and division that's really harming the unity of the church in Corinth. So, keeping that in mind, when we think about our text here, I just want to give two main points. Two main points that kind of hold together what's going on in this short little passage that we were looking at. Uh, First point to make is, the Holy Spirit's activity is known by whether or not it exalts Jesus as Lord. That's one point. These are just assertions. We'll deal with them later, but that's one point. And second, there's one divine origin of spiritual gifts, and they're all for the good of the body. They're all for the common good. So if you get nothing else, those are the two main threads that are holding together this passage here. So first, just this idea of the Holy Spirit's activity is known by whether or not it exalts Jesus as Lord. Uh, Paul starts off this chapter with saying, now concerning spiritual gifts. He's going into this topic. And throughout 1 Corinthians, there are six places in total where Paul starts a section with, now concerning this. Now concerning that, now concerning this other thing. So he does this six times. And these are sections where Paul is responding to questions that the Corinthians had asked of him. Okay, we know that because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote to me, and then he goes on, he kind of has this bit about marriage. So concerning these things that you wrote to me, and then each time he says that, he's responding to something that the Corinthians are interested in. Something they're asking him about and want his authoritative opinion about. So here, we learn that the Corinthians are concerned about spiritual matters, spiritual gifts. 
Actually, the original language is kind of ambiguous of what it's saying. The word gifts isn't there. So spiritual things, spiritual persons, spiritual gifts, just in general, this is something that they're curious about. And if we remember, as Bruce mentioned, uh, throughout this foundation series, when he gave the introduction of this, he talked about how the church in Corinth, in a lot of ways, was like a, a church planter's dream to be working there, to be part of that business, because this is a young, immature, but vibrant, and real, and legitimate, and experiential church. Things are happening there. They're misguided at times. Sometimes they're outright, explicitly sinful in some very dangerous ways. But things are happening at the church in Corinth. Things are going on. This isn't a dead, staid church. And this is very important to remember, uh, if for no other reason than to remind ourselves that when the Corinthians would have first read this letter that Paul wrote to them, when they would have first got together and read this out loud, they would have heard these things as a corrective to things that they're already experiencing. So this, this start of chapter 12, when it's concerning these things and he kind of lists them off, this is a corrective to things they're already dealing with. That's why they're asking about it. So that's important to note because they wouldn't have read it as an abstract sort of guide to, uh, to, to spirituality, something with which they had no familiarity, which is how we often look at it, and we kind of try to learn from it that way. That's not what would have been going on with them at all. So they wouldn't have opened up to the 12th chapter and said, okay, hold on, there's a gift of tongues? Tell me more about this. There's a gift of prophecy? What's going on here? No, this, this is stuff they're already experiencing. This was vibrant and active and happening in their church. So this is already going on, and they needed to be taught regarding the appropriate practice and purpose of these things, not just about them in an abstract sort of instructional sense. And this might not seem like a big deal or make a huge difference, but really it does make a really big difference with how we read this letter. And this, this section in particular, uh, if we try to read this with the same interests that the Corinthians had, they're asking these questions. They want to have an explanation of what they're experiencing and Paul to give his opinion on it. That's what's going on. And if we kind of keep that lens as we look at this, we'll make a lot more sense of some of the different emphases that Paul brings out. So they're concerned about these spiritual things. Concerning spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be uninformed. And what does Paul tell them after that? Paul says, well, when you were pagans, when you were Gentiles, you know that you were led off to dumb, mute idols, and you were carried off however you were carried. So why would Paul bring this up? Why would, he, why would he be talking about their past, and what would that have to do with their present experience? They're asking about their present Christian experience, and Paul is saying, well, you know, back in the day, you used to do this. It doesn't really seem to connect too well, but it seems like part of the reason is because Paul is reminding these Corinthians, he's reminding them, hey, being carried off in ecstatic, powerful, meaningful experiences of worship, that just in and of itself doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove anything because you know that you had those same experiences when you worshipped idols. You were carried off and let off in all sorts of ways when you were worshipping idols. Dumb, mute idols that couldn't do anything. You made them with your own bare hands. And this is a really important point because throughout the ages, experience scores very highly for all of us. Experience scores very highly when it comes to how we determine what's real, what's true, and what's important. We kind of have different ways of thinking throughout the course of time, but this is something that always is going to play a very essential part, how we experience things. Something happens to us. It impacts us. It's powerful. 
And now as a result, we see the world differently. We look at our circumstances differently. And this is completely unavoidable. Completely unavoidable. We can't deny the power that personal experience, that that it has. It has this sort of power. It does stuff. It shapes us. So the issue, of course, is how we interpret these various sorts of experiences that we have. And I think that's what Paul is kind of trying to clarify here. So we know things are going to happen. We know they're going to shape us, but how are they going to shape us? How are we going to allow them to shape us? We talked about this uh, a lot when we walked through the book of James during the summer. You're going to have difficult times. You're going to have suffering. You're going to face trials. Now, are you going to use that as an opportunity to view God as the one who gives wisdom and the one who's consistently good? Or are you going to use that as an opportunity to doubt his goodness? To be tossed about like a wave in the ocean. That's what James is saying. So this is something we're kind of familiar with. How we interpret our experiences, it matters. And here Paul is saying to the Christian Corinthians, don't interpret powerful experiences as being from the Holy Spirit just because they're powerful. That's not the way that you tell. That happened in your pagan days when you were worshiping idols. So, how do you gauge what is and what isn't from the Holy Spirit? Paul gives this brilliant response that really gets down to brass tacks here because he just says, now, no one with the Spirit of God curses Jesus and no one says Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God. Can't even make that basic, Christian, heartfelt confession apart from the Spirit of God. So this is how you interpret your experience, says Paul. Is is, is your experience something that is exalting Jesus? Is it something that's magnifying him as Lord of all, lifting him up as worthy of praise? If so, then necessarily it's of the Holy Spirit. It can't not be. That's what Paul's saying there. Because this is what the Holy Spirit is in the business of doing. This is very consistent throughout the New Testament. One of the most famous sections in the Bible on the work of the Holy Spirit is in John 16. And Jesus himself is talking to his disciples about what the Holy Spirit is going to do when he sends them in his fullness. He's explaining this. And then in uh, chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus makes this promise. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. Kind of summing up everything. He's going to glorify me. That's what he's going to do. And I think this is exactly what Paul's point is. And I think Paul was very aware of this central role of the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, J.I. Packer, he's, he wrote a book about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he tells this story uh, from his own experience. And Packer says this. I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words, He shall glorify me. Seeing the building floodlit as I turned around a corner, I realized that this was exactly the illustration that my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them, you are not in fact supposed to see them or where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are aimed. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness, and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into view so that you can see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Packer goes on and he says, or think of it this way, it's as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus who stands facing us. Think about that. That's a really really cool image there. So he says, the Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him. 
see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, look to him, go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. And I really do think this is pretty convicting stuff in terms of how we think about the Holy Spirit. We might even be a little uncomfortable with it as you read that. And he says that it's not the Spirit's job to point to himself. And we might be a little uncomfortable with that because it feels like we're downplaying the role of the Spirit somehow. But in reality, we're doing the opposite. Because as Jesus himself says, it's the purpose of the Spirit to glorify Jesus. That's his role. He's in the fitting place when he's doing that. So that's the first point there. Second point is this idea of variety of gifts and one divine origin. So this is a, this is a really important and really simple point that in verses 4 to 6 is being made by Paul. It really gets overlooked. And I think part of the reason why it gets overlooked is because our experience... And this is, this is understandable, but our experience is so different from that of the Corinthians to the point that we get sidetracked by different things, distracted by different things that are going on in the text, and then the parts that are the real meat and potatoes that Paul is really trying to emphasize, we just kind of look at that as a rhetorical flourish or something, just a little point that he's kind of making to finish off his sentence. We see them as not as important. So if we look at verses 4 to 6, this, let's just look at what's getting highlighted here. Varieties of gifts... Same spirit. Varieties of service, same Lord. Varieties of activities, same God who empowers them all. And if we cheat and look a little bit ahead to the verse that we're talking about next week, we see in verse 8, Paul says, An utterance, there's this utterance of knowledge, it's according to the same spirit. Verse 9, there's faith by the same spirit. Gifts of healing by the one spirit. Verse 11, after Paul lists many more gifts, he says, All these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each as he wills. Okay, so let's just kind of think of what's ringing in our minds here. So if you listen to country music, and this is a, this is a very natural segue, I find. I don't think you should be surprised. You're talking about spiritual gifts. You've got to bring up country music. It connects. One of the things you'll notice about country music, this is like modern pop country music I listened to a lot of in the early 90s, I'm not ashamed to say. One of the things you'll notice about country music is very, very often the title of a country song is going to be the first line or the last line of the chorus. Okay? That's often what's going to happen. You're going to listen to it. There's the, that's kind of the gimmick of how you get into it. Why does it have this title? You listen to the song, it's not making sense, gets to the end of the chorus. Okay, it ties it all together. And that's kind of one of the things that they use to get you hooked on and get you listening to this stuff. The chorus is the main part of the song, it repeats more than any other part. And then the last part of the chorus is going to stick out more than anything else. That's the main thing. So, okay, not a, not a wasteful analogy here. So, if you think of this as a section of a country song, we should really be surprised, I think. We should really be surprised that our Bibles and our commentaries and our own personal interests title this section Spiritual Gifts. That's the title of it. Or more pointedly, we should be surprised that the particular spiritual gifts are the main thing that stick out to us. Because what, what's the line in the chorus? What's the line at the end of every chorus in this section? Same Spirit, same Lord, same God. And then later, same, 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 one and the same Spirit. That's the title of the song. That's what's actually being emphasized here. We read gifts, services, activities, and we think, ooh, are gifts the same as activities? We try to parse these things out. Can you have a spiritual gift and not be doing a spiritual service? How does this all work? We try to figure out all this kind of stuff. Can you, can you perform these things? We see gifts of healing. Oh boy, prophecy, tongues. 
all this kind of stuff. What does this mean? How does this work? How do we live this out in the church today? My goodness. And we get so interested in wanting to figure out how all of these things work. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But the chorus of the tune here is same, same, same spirit. This is what Paul is hammering home every single time. And I wonder why, hey? Because remember, Paul is writing to deal with disunity. He's writing to deal with factions. He's not writing to teach people how to discern their own personal spiritual gift. They already were doing this stuff. This was already happening in their life. He's not. He's not writing to do that. But he's saying same spirit, same spirit, same spirit. Repeated over and over and over. And this is how he wants to draw the Corinthians into unity. So tying this back in with the body theme, he wants to remind them, once you really get that the source of your gifts and the head of the body to which you're a part is one and the same, once you get that, you'll start to realize the unity that you already have in Christ, and you'll realize that you need to live up to it in the present time. So, often, this this is a refrain for Paul throughout the New Testament. He kind of says this paradoxical, yet so important idea of become what you already are in Christ. Christ has unified you. He's made you one. He's made you part of his body. Now become that. So the question for us, when we think about this stuff, how often do you come to a committee meeting at church with the deep awareness that the exact same spirit that called you to the meeting called the irritating person across the table from you? Exact same spirit. How often do we come to serve, to worship, to volunteer, to gather with the deep awareness that it's the exact one and the same spirit who's called us. The spiritual gift stuff is important. We're going to get to that. But this is the refrain of the song that Paul is singing right here. Same spirit, same spirit. And I really think that this, we we think this less often than we'd like to think, I bet. I think that's the case. We can affirm it mentally and theologically, but I think in our heart of hearts, we often think, you know, we are the ones coming to this meeting with the real pure intention. We are the ones coming with the real honest heart of worship. We are the ones coming with the real insight as to how to explain how to get things done. We're the ones with the ability to make a difference. Whereas our brothers and sisters over here, they may be doing that, but kind of on a second-rate level compared to me. And we're just so much more like the Corinthians than we realize as soon as we start thinking that way. It's the same spirit. Same spirit that's called, gifted, and loved you. And not only that, but Paul says at the conclusion of our passage that this is all for the common good. It's entirely impossible for spirituality to cause division when the purpose of the gift of the spirit is to work towards the common good. It just can't happen. We actually understand what the Holy Spirit's all about. So as we continue to worship today, And as we press into this series more and further, and we're understanding what it means to be part of the body of Christ, we're understanding that he, Jesus, is the head of this body, and his spirit is the one, the same spirit who empowers us. As we press into this more, may we be deeply aware that it's the same spirit who calls us to be part of this body, who gifts us to build up this body, and who empowers us to glorify Jesus, who is the head of this body. Same spirit. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your truth, we thank you for your word, and we just thank you for the simple but profound message that we're reading in this text here, that it's the same spirit that's gifted us, one and the same, completely unified, no division among himself. Lord, I just ask that we as a body, as a congregation, could really sense the weight of that, 
And I ask that you can get rid of the sense of arrogance that we often have where we think that we have the real pure motive behind things and just help us to lay that down and recognize that I'm only here because your spirit's called me just like he's called my brother, just like he's called my sister. And just let that sense of, of the unity of who you are in and of yourself, let that be something that makes us strive and press towards unity as well. Lord, it's the same spirit that's brought us all here today. And as we lift up our voices as one, let that be something that's on our hearts, that you've called us to pray to you, to sing to you today, to draw us into that, Lord Jesus.